after reading the part of the text that y'all read, those songs of, of praise from Mary and Zechariah, and even after seeing what Elizabeth says when Mary shows up to her house, I'm sure you can see what I mean when I say that this praise went beyond John the Baptist and his birth, and it was looking ahead to Jesus. Mary shows up, and at first John himself leaps in the womb of Elizabeth. Then Elizabeth says to Mary that she's extremely blessed because she's the mother of the Lord. Then Mary lets out this humble song of gratitude and praise, and, and she's grateful that she gets to, to birth the Savior into the world. Then later we get to, to Zechariah, and he can finally speak at his son's birth. But of the 12 verses we see him speak in, only two of them is him speaking about his son, and the other 10 are all about him speaking, speaking about Christ. And I think Luke shows this on purpose. Remember Luke's a meticulous writer. He writes with intentionality behind every single sentence. And what we've seen time and time again in the last few weeks is, is that chapter 1 is full of him beating the same drum. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. He said that over and over and over again. He continues to beat the same drum before he even ever shows us Jesus. But why? Why does Luke do this? In the first four verses, he, he says to, to his readers that he wants to give them certainty about Jesus' life so that our lives can be changed by the truth of Jesus. And then in verses 5 to 38, that we looked at last week, he shows us that Jesus is coming and, and he's going to provide light to the world's darkness. And now we come here, and, and even with John's birth, Luke shows us and, and wants us to see that we're to look beyond John and see Jesus. And I think there's two reasons he does this. The first is because he wants his readers to sense and and feel this anticipation that had built up around the, 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 the coming of this promised Savior that they waited on for so long. And the second reason, I think, is because he knew that some of his readers were followers, disciples of John the Baptist. And some of them needed to be woken up to realize that John was only a pointer to Jesus. At the time of Luke writing his gospel, there still would have been people who were fully devoted followers of John. John's disciples, they, they would have boasted in this. They've had this great appreciation for John and, and been blessed by his preaching and prophesying and, and some of them might even have been baptized by John himself. And so they had this sense of, of pride and, and strong identification with John the Baptist. Like, I'm one of John's people. And so here when, when Luke writes about John's birth and he shows us that there was more celebration and praise about the coming birth of Jesus, I think he's aiming at John's disciples and trying to let them know that they need a greater devotion to the Savior than the one who was associated with the Savior. And the reason I'm taking so much time to, to unpack this and think through loose intentions before we even look at the text is because I think there's a lesson for us in this. Like, could it be possible that sometimes we, we also celebrate and revel in things associated with Christ more than we revel in Christ himself? Take church plant, for example. We planted a church, 500 people. We're here, we're gathering on Sundays. So now we get to kind of wear that badge, you know, like, like I'm missional. <laughs> I help plant a church. But if we're going to wear that badge at church plant, man, let's, let's make sure that we're reveling more in the Savior that the church plant's supposed to bring people to than we are the identity we have as church planters now that we've seen these planted. Or even in our own individual evangelism. It's like we share the gospel, it's like, oh, I really, really, really want this person to come to Jesus. Because then I'll get to say that I saw someone come, 
to Jesus. The Lord used me in the enemy of Christ. I really want to see that, so I can, I can finally say, I can let someone to the Lord. Let's make sure we care more about identifying with Christ than we care about identifying ourselves as successful evangelists. And let's make sure we care more about identifying with Christ than anything else that's associated with him. Let's not be like the followers of John. Man, John was a faithful prophet. He prophesied to the Savior. Praise John. So, no, 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 no. Praise the one he pointed to. Praise Jesus. I can't emphasize that enough. Praise the one he pointed to. That's what Luke has been trying to show us for the entirety of chapter 1. Praise the one John pointed to. And so three quick lessons about the praise of the one that John pointed to. First, that praise follows belief and proof. Praise follows belief and proof. Second, praise gets the attention of others. Praise gets the attention of others. And third, praise points to the Savior of the world. Praise points to the Savior of the world. First, let's consider how praise follows belief and proof. One of the common factors we see with each of these characters and, and the praise that they give is that there's a spiritual compulsion to them. There's a spiritual aspect to, to the praise that they offer. And we see this because the text outright tells us in verses 41 and 67 that Elizabeth and Zechariah are filled with the Holy Spirit when they offer praise. And then earlier in chapter 1, verse 35, we're told that the Holy Spirit rests upon Mary so that Jesus could be conceived. And then here in her song, she says that her spirit rejoices in God. And so with each of these individuals who we see praise Jesus in this passage, we know that they're compelled and driven to praise outwardly because of spiritual work that takes place within them. So there's this internal spiritual reckoning with the coming of Jesus that makes them express an outward excitement about that coming. And this informs us about what praise of the Savior should be. In 1 Corinthians 2.10, Paul talks about how God has revealed the truth of, truths of the gospel to us by the Spirit. And so Paul even says that the things which are revealed to us and cause outward praise among God's people are revealed to us inwardly by the work of the Spirit. And this is what we should understand praise to be. It's an outward, heartfelt expression of an inward, heartfelt recognition given by the Holy Spirit. So a couple things we can glean from this. The first is that we can actually praise Jesus without the help of the Holy Spirit. You can't do it. Can't knowledge doesn't get us there. We've got to rest in Christ and, and seek to be led by His Spirit if we're truly going to offer Him praise. And then the second thing is that when the Holy Spirit helps us to see Jesus for who He is, it demands praise of us. You can't help but praise Him when this is the case. Each of the characters in this passage, they're, they're filled with the Holy Spirit and they praise. Every Christian in this room, we're filled with the Holy Spirit, but do we praise? Do we live in the house of praise? If you're in this room and you're a follower of Christ, friend, you gotta know that you're only a follower of Christ because God the Holy Spirit has removed scales from your eyes and allowed you to see the truth of the gospel. And so in response to that, what you want to do is continue seeking to grow in your knowledge of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5 talks about us walking by and, and living by and keeping in step with the Holy Spirit. And I think at the most basic level, the way we do this is by seeking to uphold the fruit of the Spirit that the same chapter in Galatians lays out for us. So continue seeking to grow in your knowledge of Him by aligning with 
the, the, the behaviors and, and the things that are of the Holy Spirit. And then, when your knowledge grows, and when the, the Spirit helps you to conceive, continue seeing and, and growing in your knowledge of the gospel, respond with praise. Praise God for the gift of knowing Him. In the same way that these people in the passage are filled with and, and responded with praise as they look forward to the birth of Christ, we in this room who are filled with the Spirit should respond with praise because we look back to the resurrection and forth to the second coming of Christ. But like we know what we have in Jesus. So what excuse do we have to not be a people of praise? Let's be a people of praise, friends. And, and, and as the Spirit continues to give us belief in, and help us to see the gospel's truth, as we grow in that more and more and more, let's praise more and more and more with more gratitude for who Christ is and for the opportunity to see that. And I know that, that praise looks different for some of us. We're a diverse church on purpose. That was intentional. So you've got people from diverse backgrounds and diverse church backgrounds. And so this isn't me saying that, that everybody should come in the room and, and get the same amount of amens in the sermon. Uh, if, if more people wanted to give amens, I wouldn't be mad about that. I think I'd actually be helped by it. Amen? Amen. Amen. But I'm not saying that all praise looks the same. What I am saying is that when we're giving spiritual insight into the spiritual truth of the gospel because of the spiritual work of God within us, let's say God is this is a miracle and lift our, our, the, the eyes of our hearts to God and then respond with some kind of praise. Even if it is silent, let's make sure that we delight with praise unto the Lord when he gives us insight into his truth. Praise follows belief and proof, friends. As the people of God, those who have gifted with belief in the gospel, we're people of praise. That's the expectation according to what Luke writes about Zechariah, Elizabeth, and Mary. So praise follows belief and proof. And praise also gets the attention of others. If you look at the second part of the passage, beginning in verse 57, you'll notice that when it's time for John to be born, Word has gotten out about Elizabeth being pregnant and, and, and people have started to share in this excitement with her and Zechariah. And so up to this point, Zechariah hadn't been able to speak, just kind of giving context for those who may not have been here the last two weeks. Uh, up to this point, Zechariah has not been able to speak because God made him mute when he didn't believe an angel that came and told him he would have a son. And verse 24 of chapter 1 tells us that Elizabeth went into seclusion after John was conceived. So she found out she's pregnant, she goes into seclusion, Zechariah is unable to speak, but in spite of Elizabeth's seclusion and Zechariah's silence, people still find out that she's pregnant, and so they're coming in and they're rejoicing with them in that. So people see this about Elizabeth, they remember that she couldn't have children, and they rejoice with her. And verse 59 says that after John was born, it was time for him to, to be circumcised. So this rejoicing group, there's all this excitement, you can kind of feel it in the room. There's, there's this baby born to this old woman who was unable to have kids. And as they're rejoicing with her, they join her, and they start having conversations about what his name should be. And so they come with ideas, and they're like, oh, name him, name him after his dad, Zechariah. Like, give him that name. They probably felt bad for Zechariah because he couldn't speak. So it's like, the least you can do is name him after name the child after his daddy. And so they come with rejoicing, and, and Zechariah is able to speak, and, 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 and they come with ideas. And, so name him Zechariah. But Elizabeth responds and she says, no. She said, we're naming him John. 
And now this threw everybody for a loop. Because at this point, it was common to give familiar names, and names were really, really, really big deal. So they said, you need to name him after his dad. Nobody in your family has the name John. She's like, no, 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 we're naming him John. And they're like, okay, let's see what Zechariah's got to say. Like, Zechariah, you can't speak, but, but here's a tablet. Write down what you think his name should be. Zechariah takes the tablet. He writes the name John. There are several things we got to understand about what happens in this single instance. The name John means Jehovah has been gracious or God has shown faith. Zechariah couldn't speak. So he wrote it down. And then he showed the people on this tablet. And when he handed them this tablet, what they read is this name that's also a message. Jehovah has been gracious. God has shown favor. See, they heard this with the same name. But I'm sure we all know that sometimes it helps to both hear and to see. Like, I'm sure we've all had those times when you meet someone new and they tell you their name, but you don't quite understand them, so you ask what questions. Oh, how do you spell it? And I'm sure we all know that, that, that sometimes when you look at something on a piece of paper, and you read it, which means you hear it in your own mind, in your own voice, sometimes that makes the message become more clear. So when Zechariah writes this on a tablet and, and he hands it to the people and they all read it in their own voice, the message became more clear. Jehovah has been gracious. God has shown favor. They read it and, and, and now they understand that this name is, is not just a name, but it is also a message. And Zechariah and Elizabeth are saying something with the, the, the task of making their son. And so the text tells us in verse 63 that after they read this name, they were all amazed. The light bulb is starting to go off. And then on top of that, verse 64 says that Zechariah's mouth opens and he's able to speak again. And verse 65 says that after he speaks, fear came on all those who lived around them. And all these things were being talked about throughout the hill country of Judea. Now that word fear is kind of a reinforcement of what we saw in verse 63 with the word amazement. So there's this astoundedness, there's this, this wild factor with what Zechariah and Elizabeth are doing when they name their son. I think about all the switches that would have gone off in these people's minds at that moment. You got this woman who was unable to have children. Her entire life she'd been married. But in her old age, she ends up pregnant. And then her husband, who is also a priest, goes to the temple one day, and he comes back suddenly unable to speak. And this happens to be around the same time that she gets pregnant. And then, when she has the child, they give her this name that means God has shown favor. And after writing that name on the tablet, the priest's husband, he's suddenly able to speak again. All of this would have been thrown to the people in the very moment of John receiving his name. And their attention is right. They realize, oh, something must be up. There's something different about this child. They even ask the question in verse 66, what will this child become? For indeed, the Lord's hand must be with him. So their attention's grabbed. But they also did was praise that grabbed their attention. From the very start, when they want to give their son the name that the angel told him he would have, it's praise. And then the name itself is a statement of praise. God has shown favor. And then when Zechariah is able to speak up and be silent for nine months, look at what the text says. It says there was praise on his lips. 
He had spoken, and the first thing he wants to do when he, was, when he can speak again is praise the Lord God. He's praising God. And as a result, look at what we see. Verse 62, they were amazed. Verse 65, fear came on all those who lived around them. They were being talked about throughout the hill country. Verse 66, all who heard about him took it to heart. Friends, praise gets the attention of others. And this is why I think it's necessary for God's people to be a people of praise. There's still a lot that these folks don't even know about the Savior yet. This is John's birth, and Jesus hadn't even been born yet. So what excuse do we have when we can look back and, and, and see the life and read a gospel about the life of Jesus and know that he has come and not only lived, but died on the cross and defeated death and rose from the dead? What excuse do we have when we can look back at that and know that our lives have been changed by it? How can we not give people a praise? Amen? Amen. We've got the truth of the gospel revealed to us. They didn't have it, and yet they still praise. And I love that the passage points out that the people who lived around them had their attention grabbed by the praise. We want to be faithful in evangelism. We want to see our church reach this community we're in. Let's talk about giving people a praise. Let's be a people of praise. Let's have such clear, expressed love for the Lord that other people want to know Him because they see how good He is to us. Let's be a people of praise, friends. It happened then, before the Savior had even come. So why not now, since He's already come? Why would people not be able to see our lives and, and have their attention be grabbed because we're a people of praise? Praise gets the attention of others. And we should seek to live with praise so we can direct this attention to Christ. So point number three, praise gets the attention of others, but it also points to the Savior of the world. Praise points to the Savior of the world. The text says that the people's attention was grabbed and, and that there was fear and amazement and, and taking it to heart and, and, and that they just kind of knew that something must have been up. But see, I wonder if they wondered what exactly must have been about to happen. So they knew something was up with this child, and they knew that the, the Lord must be at work. But the question in verse 66 tells us that there's still some vagueness in the beginning. There's some things they're unsure about. But I don't think they had too long to go before having some of their questions be answered. So if you look at both Mary and Zechariah's song, they're telling the world what's about to happen. They don't know much about Jesus yet, but they're telling the world all that they do know. Mary's, her song mentions how she's blessed and how her soul rejoices. And, and then in verse 50, she says this, she says, The Lord's mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. God's ultimate mercy is seen in Jesus. And then verses 51 through 55, she says, God has done a mighty deed and, and scattering the crowd and, and toppling the mighty from their thrones, sending the rich away, yet satisfying the hungry, and exalting the lowly, helping the, his servant. I was talking with Marty this week, and, and he, he pointed out that Mary's song seemed to be what he called a reversal of fortune. Meaning those who have great earthly standing are, are being humbled, and those who are humble in need of help are being uplifted. What Luke shows us when he writes about Mary's song is a gospel reality, friends. It's a reinforcement of what Jesus himself says in Mark 2.17. The healthy don't need a doctor, but the sick do. I can't even save sinners. That's what Luke showed us. And what Mary shows in her song is, 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 is this joyous recognition of her need for help and her hope for help in the Savior who she would give birth to. 
And then you've got Zechariah's song. He also points to the Savior. In verse 68, he says, Blessed be the Lord, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. Zechariah has such confidence in, in his redemption that's going to come through the Savior that he's talking about Jesus and he speaks in past tense as if it's already happened. He speaks about Jesus in past tense. Like, like it's hard, we're good. He's that confident that God always fulfills the promises he makes. And isn't this ironic? This is Zechariah who, just a few verses earlier, we saw had this disbelief and was made silent because he didn't believe the angel when he came and, and told him that he was going to have a son. But here, he's got such belief and confidence that he speaks about something of the future as if it's already happened. I hope that's an encouragement to any of us who sometimes need time to work out questions before we reach a place of certainty. An encouragement to any of us who sometimes need time to work out our doubts. See, there's nothing wrong with having unanswered questions sometimes. But what we see in the life of Zechariah is that the key is that when we explore and seek to answer these questions, we're led back to praise of God. Amen. Zechariah had time and, 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 and he sat in silence and, 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 and had all this, this, this time that the Lord had given him to just think and, and, and pray and wonder about what the angel told him in the temple. And after thinking and praying and having that time, he was led back to praise. So take your time. Ask your questions. Ask the Lord to help you with your unbelief. But always be led back to praise. Zechariah continues on with his song of praise, and he references the Old Testament a lot. He's referring to his coming Savior as the fulfillment of the promised Savior from the Old Testament prophets. He says that the Savior is the one who's been prophesied since ancient times, and, and he's proved that God has remembered his covenant to his ancestors to save them from their enemies. And, and he says it's an expression of God's merciful compassion that the Savior is coming to shine on those who live in darkness and guide them into the way of peace. We can look at this prophecy and, and, and just all day continue to pull more and more and more out of what Zechariah is saying. But what we see overarching is that Zechariah, like Mary, Praises the coming Savior because he, like Mary, knew that he needed the help his Savior would provide. And I find joy in identifying with the songs of Mary Zechariah. I need help. And I'm glad that no help is found in Christ. I'm so glad that no help is found in Christ, friends. I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon that these prophecies look beyond John the Baptist and they show us excitement about Jesus. Well, again, this is because some had temptation to stop at John. They would have been tempted to stop at John, but Luke knew they needed to go further. John could only help them in as much as he pointed to the greater helper, Jesus Christ. And some of you here today, you might have stopped at something. You're looking for help in something that can't provide you with help. I want to say to you, what John implied, or what Luke implied to John's followers. Look past John and see Christ. You friends, look past whatever it is you're seeking for help and look to Christ. Look to Christ. He's the one who can give you your help. He's the one who's shown that, that sin and death stand no chance when we look to him. But he lived a perfect life for us. He showed us that he could help us with sin. And then when he, when, when he was killed on the cross and rose from the dead, he showed us that he could help us find eternal life and be freed from the byproducts of sin, such as sickness and burden and worry and even death. Amen. 
So Jesus, Lee, is the one who can cry out for help. He's the help we need. Luke's been beating that drum all of chapter 1. Look past everything and look to Christ. Kind of good news. In two weeks, we start chapter 2. And then we see the birth of the Savior. This one that we're waiting on and anticipating the birth of, we finally get to see him be born. And we read the story of how the world was forever changed by his birth. And my prayer for all of us is that when we do, we respond with praise. Just pray. Father, you're worthy of praise. And yet we so often fail to give it like you're worthy of. And so I pray this morning that you would help us. Help us as individuals, God, to praise you in a way that you're worthy of being praised. Help us as a, a church body, God, to praise you in the, word, the way that you're worthy of being praised. We want your name to be heralded in all the world, Father. And so would you help us to praise you, to lift your name high in all that we do, that we make our lives be aimed at the end of praise unto your great name. Might we look forward to the day where we'll have a new life in heaven, and that'll be all our lives consist of praising you, worshiping you, continuing to rejoice in the fact that we've been saved to you. Would you help us, God, to praise you now, and to look forward to the day that we'll praise you in eternity? We pray all of this in the name of Christ Himself. Amen.